Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Joel, the CTO at ThoughtTrace, and we discuss the evolution of the CTO role as a company scales, the importance of practicing patience when recruiting, and the ethical decisions surrounding the advancement of artificial intelligence. All of this right here, right now on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Hello, hello. Hello, Joel. Joel, this is so much fun. It's like two Joels, right? What's going to happen today? This is a first or what? Kind of. We had one. I told you it was the first in the prep meeting, but then I remember we had one other Joel and there was like an audio issue. And so we didn't actually air that episode. But uh, uh -huh. yeah, he was uh, the CTO of um, UCF, like the college in Florida. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Really smart guy. So he did our name well. <laughs> but yeah, sometimes the episodes just don't air because the audio or lag or drift. But we've gotten we've gotten much better at the technical aspect of it. So it should be smooth sailing from here on out. Yeah, you learn every time a little bit, I guess. Huh? We could do the whole episode on that. Just that <laughs> one one <laughs> seed of a thought, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh man, so what, what, uh, I guess the, a good place to start something I'm actually interested in, cause I saw a little bit about what you're doing now, but I was curious about where you got your start. How did you get involved like with technology as a kid? Did you get involved as a kid or was it in high school or college? Like when did you first fall in love with technology? That's a really good question. I, probably a, a little bit of a, I would say non-traditional route, although I think everybody has somewhat of a non-traditional route. But I would say really college more than any anything. And I, I would say it was it was not so much technology at the time as it was like, you know, engineering, which is which is my background. I was doing a lot of, you know, computational simulation work, like more mathematical modeling. Actually worked, did some like internship work with Lockheed through college, uh, working on the F-35 program and things like that. And then uh, went to grad school and and uh, took a little bit of a different path, but started working on sonar systems and doing a lot with signal processing and some more mathematical modeling stuff. And and so that really that really kind of I, I think more than anything charted my path into like the machine machine learning world. So like software, strictly speaking, is is not so much my background. It's more on I would say the analytics and machine learning side that that. Uh, I've, I've kind of got more of a background and, and like I said, it was more of a, of a, of a stepping stone starting more like traditional engineering sciences and then kind of migrating more into the, the computer science realm uh, over time. And then obviously when I joined, joined ThoughtTrace, um, you know, initially working on, on the AI machine learning part of what we do, but, but ultimately taking on the, the software engineering and, and product aspects of, of the company too. So it's been, uh, a consistent learning experience for me, which, which is awesome. It's what I like. Yeah. How, how did you approach it? Were you like, I'm going to learn every single thing I possibly can about this software engineering, or I'm going to find some really bright people and empower them. How did you go about, you know, solving that, that part where you didn't have like as much experience as like the mechanical engineering? Yeah, I, I would say more the latter in terms of bright people. Like, you know, I've got a, a great team of people 
not all of whom, you know, I directly hired some of whom were, who were here when I got here and, and some of whom uh, we've hired since, but, but certainly like building a good team of people around you and, you know, encouraging their growth and leaning on them for, for, for what they're good at and, and focusing on what you're good at, I would say has been, you know, kind of core to, to my strategy in terms of, in terms of leading the team and, and growing the company. Uh, but certainly like there's that personal like growth aspect of it too. And, and try to be a good listener and ask a lot of questions of my team when I, when I don't fully understand things and, and, uh, and sort of just watching, watching what they do and being, uh, be maybe thoughtful about when I challenge and how I challenge maybe certain, certain things. I think, I think has been helpful to me in terms of my own growth as well as the growth of, of our team as a whole. Very important, right? Yeah. Learning how to listen is a tough, a tough thing. <laughs> it is. Yeah, yeah. Especially when you come from like a, I'd say a scientific background when you're like, you're bred to be correct. You know what I mean? Like, it, I feel like you just, you get value out of being right and like knowing answers. And so like, you immediately think that's your job and everything that you do is to like have an answer, you know? And so like, you know, from a scientific perspective, it's, it's very foreign to like approach a situation and just not try to give an answer, you know? Oh man, for me, personal growth wise, letting go of my need to be right was something I worked on majorly in my twenties because yeah. it, it can work in when you're obsessed with work, which, which is how I was then I was just eat, sleep, breathing, engineering for better part of two decades. Right. And so you're working with computers and you have logs and you tell the computer what to do constantly. So you're issuing thousands of commands a day, right? Getting very explicit responses and you can log and backtrace anything to understand exactly why it didn't work. And then you leave that environment and you go interact with your spouse or like a girlfriend or, or a human, another human. And it's just, it's like, you can, I could literally feel like my brain shifting the gears and it, it was, you know, so tough to, to play both of those roles and develop, develop the uh, human skills side of things. It is. And it, it did, when you, when you don't do it right, it blows up in your face and then I feel like it blows up in your face enough times you kind of learn to adjust. And that's really, really where I come from. You nailed it right there. It's when the pain is greater than the change, <laughs> right? That's exactly it. I like you, my friend. We have, we have, uh, we're learning a lot of the same lessons, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's definitely a learning experience. And that's what's been, you know, really fun for me is just to kind of not just like learn from a technical standpoint or from a team building standpoint, but just, you know, my role itself, you know, evolves over time as well, right? I, I come into the company. Uh, we were a startup. We had two customers, I think, um, and a handful of people working on the product. And, and so, you, you know, you're very hands-on, like trying to, you know, tinker and figure out what's going to work and, you know, where you need to be going and a lot of trial and error at, at those stages, uh, but, but in a more hands-on way and kind of evolve from that into uh, like very recruiting oriented for a long time, right? Just trying to, okay, I've got something that works. I need to build a team around me and, and build up the, the team that's going to ultimately carry this forward and help us scale you know, to one that's maybe more customer oriented and product oriented, right? We're spending more time in front of, in front of prospects and customers and trying to define, define a longer term strategy. 
And then one that's more organizational, right? Like I need to figure out process-wise and, and organizationally how to empower these teams to like be independent but still stay aligned on what our long-term visions, uh, vision as a company is and what our product strategy and vision is. And so, you know, just sort of ebbing and flowing into those different like needs, you know, as a, as a, uh, a contributor at the company has been fun for me because, you know, come to work one month and you know this is what I'm I need to be doing and this is my top priority and the next month it could be something completely different and so it's been it's been a really fun fun time uh, adjusting to those different needs as we've grown I actually put a recurring event in my calendar that triggers every couple months that reminds me to like go revisit that just cuz yeah, it's like, it's like my step back. Obviously, okay, we're all perfect. We should be doing it, you know, every day or week or whatever it is. But for me, I just like every three months, uh, I put this recurring event. It says like, are you doing what's effective? Are you doing what you love? And just like two or three basic questions. And that causes me to like have to step out and evaluate like where we're, where we're at. And it's not easy to do either. No, it's not. It's, I kind of think of it as like, I'm trying to put myself out of a job at all times. You know what I mean? It's like, I think that's human nature. Like we build things to like automate tasks and like that free us up to do other things that we wish we would do. Like that's why we invented things like tractors and, and travel and all this kind of stuff. Right. And so like, I, I, I kind of approach my, my job from that same perspective. Like if I find myself spending a lot of time doing something like, I feel like I should be figuring out a way to not spend so much time doing that. And that might be like, you know, building some process or building a team around it. And, and, and certainly there's somebody in the company who can probably do that thing better than I'm doing it uh, by myself. Right. And so I, I, I try to approach it from that perspective. And I think, I think that that's a helpful way to kind of, you know, really have the, the company and have the team kind of own those things uh, more long-term rather than being, being single threaded on them. Can you give me some perspective as far as like the size of the company and what the mission is? Yeah, for sure. So we are, um, we're just shy of 70 people today. Um, we released a product in 2017. We, we are a document understanding platform. We actually have a new release coming out um, at the end of this month, uh, really kind of recasting our platform into this document understanding uh, framework. But from our perspective, document understanding like really sits at the middle of, you know, what content management systems do as well as what like, you know, newer age like contract analytics platforms do. And so contract analytics being, you know, the use of AI and machine learning to, you know, essentially read and interpret and extract relevant provisions and data from contracts to be able to ultimately like take action on those things. Right. And and that was really where we got our start was in, you know, the, the analytics space really with, with AI and machine learning as it pertains to, to documents and contracts. And, uh, you know, as we kind of evolved in that space, like, you know, we sort of saw that like the management of those documents is, is inseparable from that. Like I can't analyze this thing and not manage it also. Right. And so that led us to, to really create, you know, what we think is like a, a, a really seamless integration between those two needs, you know, from an enterprise standpoint. And, uh, and that's really what our, what our focus is now. That's exciting. I actually built some uh, like mock-up type uh, 
beta version one applications for some law firms, you know, about seven or eight years ago, uh, that was doing uh, essentially contract analysis. It would extract from the what was the word like the complaint or whatever the lawsuit was. It would extract information out of the lawsuit. Do you? Um, it didn't. It didn't progress. Like we built like a version one prototype, and then we just didn't end up doing anything with it. I just did it as a contract uh, software developer. But uh, do lawyers use your product? Is that in the wheelhouse of what you guys are doing, or no? Yeah, it is. I mean, we have we have a lot of lawyers who who use our product. I would say, you know, more of the focus for us is direct, you know, sales into like you know companies and businesses and enterprise rather than like legal services firms and things like that. And so, our users tend to be more like, you know, business analysts and business users uh, who are responsible for you know compliance with the contract or like you know managing assets associated to those contracts. Uh, not so much like legal work specifically, but in some cases that that does lead its way into legal work. But you know things like diligence on acquisitions and divestitures um, are, are are very common things for us where where we get involved on on the legal side as well. But really, the, the suite of problems like are not just legal in nature. Like legal, honestly, is an important but but a pretty narrow scope of of like I think the whole uh, scope of problems that exist around your documents and kind of the information that's that's buried inside of them, you know? And so what is like one of the coolest use cases that you see happening a lot? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, so so we've been uh, we've been in the process of, uh, you know, we started like with a pretty, I would say, narrow industry focus, but over the last year or two have uh, have really grown um into into other markets and other use cases and industries as well from our perspective like use cases around like land and title and things like that where you literally have an individual going into a courthouse like pulling files out of file folders from like you know 10 20 30 40 50 years ago trying to create run sheets and things like that i just saw you know a demo uh, one of our subject matter experts gave this morning uh, on our new product of, you know, literally like doing three or four button clicks and creating a title run sheet in our application, you know? So like there, there's some really like, I would say, I don't want to call that simple, but like some really archaic like methods of doing simple tasks uh, uh, like title, for instance, that, that are just awesome to see, really, really fun to see. And then there's like really complex things where, you know, somebody's doing an acquisition of, you know, a billion plus dollar asset and they identify, you know, a hundred million dollars in defects that they can go call back or, or fight back around. So like there's the, there's the high end and there's, the, there's the kind of big scale of, of how our application gets used. And then there's the real like day-to-day improvement of, of uh, process and efficiency. And so it's fun to see both ends of that spectrum. So I don't know a ton about the space, but as you're describing it, it seems like across contracts, there would be some similar things across all, all of your vertical, all of your different use cases, like participants or individuals mentioned in the document, right? That could be something that would be useful across all of them. Like here are all the people that appear in this document, right? Mm -hmm. But then there's going to be inevitably like very specific things that you're going to want to look for in certain verticals. So do you set up teams and like prioritize like 
how you build, you know, I guess the, the parsing or the insights, like you create insights from the documents. So you have to program the insights and I'm assuming insights are vertical specific. So how has that shaped the organization of your like development team? Yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic question. Actually, that that's one of the, I think the most unique things about our company and probably one of the most differentiable things actually is how we blend like the knowledge of our subject matter experts with our data science team. And so some of that is tools like like we've built internal tools for our our subject matter experts who who are typically lawyers in in the industries that that we work with kind of ex ex users of our software if you would who who now work for us and uh, um you know support us in in building those models but also do a lot of work with our customers but but they kind of have the insight and the vision for like what the needs of the user are from a from a contract interpretation standpoint how that information will be used um and so they're critical in that development process and uh and and having them work in a world of data science and machine learning is like is is really foreign to them for for obvious reasons and so We've done a lot from a from an internal software standpoint. We've developed to help bridge that gap with them and give them more familiar means of, you know, identifying the things that are of interest to them and how they want to see them, and how they want those displayed in the app. Um, but then on the back end, like you said, we're not dealing with like a, a cat classifier, you know, where I can like easily identify, you know, two million pictures of cats and I've got a really <laughs> good image classifier, like. The, the types of models we're building, you know, are, are highly nuanced in that, you know, obviously language based, but the language that we're dealing with in legal contracts, a lot of times is, is intentionally ambiguous. Like it was written in such a way to ambiguate meaning, you know, for the purpose of like interpretation. And so like that interpretive element of like labeling data becomes really, really challenging. Like it's not something you can just go yeah, outsource very easily um, to, to, you know, an, an inexperienced person. And so uh, our ability to like take every labeled sample that an SME has provided and use it to its fullest, like you said, in terms of like sharing across domains and, you know, leveraging similarities that might exist from this domain into this domain uh, is extremely important because every one of those labels and every one of those, you know, pieces of data that we use to drive our model is expensive, you know, and there is no, there's no cheap data from, from our perspective. And so a big part of our strategy is how we use that data uh, to its most effect uh, in, in, in our platform. Yeah, I saw that you guys, I, guess, I think you called it community driven AI. That you leveraged that is this what you're talking about you have these subject matter experts that are also users and they can help influence and train the system yeah you bet um so that that's definitely a part of it the other part of it i would say is really uh, around our security model of you know essentially federating the training of those models and so obviously you know dealing with legal contracts there's a there's a high degree of sensitivity and security around the information itself. You know, it's not this like social platform where all the information is available to you to just use it however you want. Um, the, 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 the contracts themselves are very, are, are, are very, you know, critical from a business standpoint in terms of the information that is contained within them uh, and, and the uh, confidentiality of it. And so 
uh, our security model in terms of how we leverage customer information to train our models uh, in a global sense allows us to build more uh, generalized models than one company could do on its own. So, you know, if I am, you know, ABC operating company, I probably have a form for some agreement, you know, and that's the same agreement that I use for this, or at least, you know, 90% of it is the same agreement that I use time and time again. But when I go do an acquisition of a company, let's say, I may get a completely different form that I've never seen before, right? So I've trained this model on this form and I've really trained to the test. And when I go throw something new at it, like I, I can't generalize outside of what, what I've trained for, for my silo, you know? And so we are able to, with, with our approach, kind of break down those silos of, of forms and sort of uh, formats of different language and, and deliver a lot more accurate and more generalized solution around, around these different contract types. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And when you were growing, it's, it looks like you've grown pretty quickly because you said you started in 2017. So that means you added, you know, 50 plus people in the past two or three years. Um, what did you learn from that when it comes to recruiting and, and finding the right people? Yeah, it's a good question. Like, I would say patience, like maybe first and foremost, you know, we, I, I don't even know the statistic, but I, I would venture to say like, single digit percentage in terms of our higher rate of interviews, you know? So like we interview a lot of people, we, we involve a lot of our team in those interview processes as well and try to get a variety of, of inputs and perspectives on it. But, but really I would say patience and really a, like a, a, a specific view of what need you're trying to fill. You know, it's hard to go out and like, Hire, let's say I want to just go hire a data scientist, right? Well, like data scientists come in a million different colors these days, right? I have people who are experts in like, you know, BI platforms who call themselves data scientists. I have like practitioners of machine learning. I have academic machine learning individuals who are super focused on research and development of model architectures, right? And like, we are not developing new model architectures. We're very much operationalizing machine learning and, and doing it in an applied way, right? And so you need to really be, be focused on the right individual who's going to excel in, in that kind of environment. And where are you spending the most time today? Yeah, so I would say today, uh, today, today is really on like our, our product, you know, and the last six months has been on our product strategy at, particularly as we, you know, come up to this new release, in terms of uh, in terms of us really taking what were previously a, a few disparate products and unifying them under a common like document understanding uh, platform going forward. And so, I really say like uh, the execution of of that strategy and that that sort of vision has been has been uh, the 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 dominant. A portion of my time here over the last, you know, call it six, six to 12 months. I think, you know, if, if I look forward just a little bit as to where we're going, like, like I said before, we are now, uh, we're now growing into, into several different markets simultaneously, which, you know, kind of creates a new, a new and different challenge for our company. And so I think looking forward, you know, I'll, I'll be back on, you know, the recruiting train again, I imagine, 
and uh, and really you know figuring out organizationally how we can be more efficient in terms of in terms of our structure and and, and process in terms of uh, how we are leveraging our employees, particularly as we are now fully remote and, and will likely be for the foreseeable future, uh, just to ensure that like the culture is maintained, you know, that, that sentiment with the engineers and that they, they love what they do and they come to work every day, doesn't fade away. Um, and, and that we maintain, you know, some, some efficiency and effectiveness in, in what we're doing and what we're, what we're trying to accomplish. So before the COVID, you guys were all coming into this main office? Yeah. So that was an interesting recruiting learning, actually. So we were, we were all coming into a main office. We're based in Texas and uh, we, we struggled recruiting, honestly, into Texas. It's not like we're in, in the Bay area and you've got like engineers jumping ship left and right, ready to come work at the next new thing. So, so recruiting was a little bit of a challenge for us, you know, in, in, in the Texas area at the time. Um, And even but, but up until that point, I would say like well into 2018, even we were uh, completely based in, in Texas and then probably, you know, early 2019, maybe late 2018, we started to do more of a hybrid remote culture and we had, uh, you know, maybe 10 to 20% of our development staff that were based remote and the rest were based in Houston. And so we, we had grown that percentage of remote, you know, remote folks over time. And maybe at pre-COVID, we were maybe at 30%. And so it was uh, it was something we were growing into when COVID hit. And obviously when 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 that did happen, we went fully remote. And and it's really worked out, I think, extremely well for us. A lot of our employees like were able to move back to hometowns and things like that. And I, I would say really are achieving a better balance of work and life and being able to spend time around, around their families and things like that uh, and living where they want to be because of that. So it's, I, I would say it's been a little bit of a blessing in disguise uh, for us from a, from a work-life standpoint. I, I hope that continues, uh, you know, our, our HR team and really our whole management team is, is really diligent about uh, doing things to, to maintain that culture and make sure that that doesn't kind of fade away behind the, behind the webcam and the microphone. Of, of course, that's like very important. And you said that you're based in Houston? Yeah, yeah. so I'm actually a COVID transplant. I, I was based in in Houston and then uh, about, I guess about a month and a half ago, I relocated back to New Orleans. So I'm from there, my wife's from there. And, uh, you know, we would spend, so we lived in Houston for about 10 years. And then, and we would spend like two weekends a month in New Orleans at that. So we were back and forth all the time. And so with COVID, you know, it was kind of unforeseen, you know, as to, as to when we'd get back into the office full time. And so we decided, you know what, like we're, we're making the sleep as a company, like we might as well make it too. And, uh, and we made the move to New Orleans and enjoying the time with the family. And, and certainly it's, a, I think, a good thing for, for my kids and my wife and, and everything like that. Um, and from a, from a work standpoint, like, you know, I, I make it a point, like, I'm in the office this week. We're having a kind of on-site where a lot of the management team will get together and just be on-site at least, you know, a couple of days out of the month uh, just to maintain some continuity and FaceTime. And so... Um, we're, we're putting together a lot of things like that just to 
uh, make sure that we're, we're we're staying aligned under this this new norm. But but all in all, I think it's it's been it's been a good thing for a lot of my team and and, and certainly myself too. Yeah, it's like it's important to find the positive in anything that's happening, right? And what you mentioned about family a couple of times, like I have found, like at first it was very difficult, <laughs> right? But then after a little bit, it just became like, this is amazing. Like I'm really getting to know my kids better. I'm really getting to see like who they are. And they're right at that age of like three and one and a half. So they're, they're small. Uh, the girl is three, the boy is one and a half. And so, you know, it, it was harder on my relationship at first and it was harder on the family at first and then something flipped and happened and then we are like closer than we've ever been before and that was uh you know if you have a i've never really talked about like or thought a whole lot about like home life in relation to professional development right as an executive but man that foundation at home just bleeds through your entire life and you don't really realize it until you're on an extreme, like an extreme of it working very poorly or an extreme of it working very well. And yeah. uh, I was kind of floating around the middle there for a while, like keeping it going. <laughs> I know. And, yeah. and I mean, you know, I think there are some drawbacks of the, of the work from home thing too, in that like it, it's harder to turn it off. Like you're always plugged in. There, there's some things to definitely be conscious of, like, you know, as, as we do more and more of this. But for me, like, you know, to your point, the small things, like there are some things I see now my two-year-old do. And like, you know, I just walk out for five minutes to grab a cup of coffee in the kitchen. You know, and I get to like, just have that five minutes, you know, and those kinds of things with my older seven-year-old, I, like, I'm, I don't remember ever seeing that side of her, you know? So it's like, I think it's even just those small moments that are, that are helpful to kind of maintain some some alignment and connection with the family throughout the day that's been really cool and everybody now is so open like you know you know my two-year-old will come barge into the office and sit on my lap and just watch a video chat or something like that and uh and it's completely normal you know and so i think that that level of acceptance of that obviously wasn't there pre-covid and so it's really nice to for, for that to be more accepted not just within our company but across the board and how, how are you now that the environment changed, how are you thinking about like burnout or unwinding, you know, hobbies? Like how, how do you, how do you get the family uh, from going stir crazy? <laughs> yeah. Well, me personally, like I, I like to do a lot of stuff outdoors. So that's, that's actually for, for me personally, one of the motivating reasons to move back to Louisiana. Like I, I love the outdoors and that's where I, I grew up you know, down, down in South Louisiana. So, so it's good to just like go out to the lake, you know, on Saturday and like sit on the levee or like take the boat out on Sunday and just spend time with the, with the kids like that. Like it's a good way to like not be at the mall and like with a crowded group of people, but still just be like kind of clearing your head and, and spending time with the family. So we try to do quite a bit of that, you know, every evening I'm like out there playing volleyball with my seven year old cause she loves that. So, you know, those, those kinds of small things where we're able just to, to get outside and, and uh, enjoy nature a little bit is, is kind of what we thrive on. Yeah. We were just in Texas last week and like the Dallas Fort Worth area, 
mm -hmm. uh, exploring that as a potential place to relocate because we're in Florida and we've both my wife and I are natives to the town that we currently live in. And so we've been here like our whole lives and it's only been getting like hotter and hotter and hotter. <laughs> like we remember, I remember when it was, it got cool, you know, and <laughs> it's just like 90. Like we were looking the other night to go for an evening walk and it's like the sun's already down and it's like 92 degrees. And yeah. yeah and, and then, you know, on Christmas last year, it was like ridiculously hot. And so we were looking online in different cities and their weather patterns and, you know, looking to go explore. And when we, when we landed in, in the DFW area last week and we stepped out of the plane and there was like, you know, half the humidity that we have. And then the temperature was like 30 degrees cooler. Uh, we were just so excited. And, uh, so we're still exploring different areas cause there's like, Texas is very big, but you know, us is huge. And I was looking up how big Texas is. Texas has a bigger economy than Russia. Did you know that? Yeah. yeah. I, uh, so I, I spent four years in Fort Worth, actually. I went to, did my undergrad at TCU. So I, I'm very familiar. I love Fort Worth, honestly. And I spent two years in Austin in grad school at UT. Yeah. So I've been a lot of places in Texas. It's an awesome state. There's a lot of people moving there from all over the country because it's a really cool spot. I heard, I, I have to check this stat. I heard on Interstate 10, it is it is farther from Dallas to El Paso than it is from El Paso to San Diego. Huh. Like it's a huge state. There's a lot yeah, to do. It is you know, big. Like West Texas, like beautiful terrain and you know, ranches in the central part, like the hill country through Austin and everything like that. So we were living in Texas, we would do some camping trips through there and things like that. Dallas and Fort Worth is kind of like old cattle town, ranch style you know, homes and things like that. And then Houston's like, you know, kind of the, the oil and gas hub, you know, more, more than anything within, within the state. So just a ton of diversity across, across Texas. It's a cool spot. You got to do some work in the oil and gas industry, right? Yeah. That was kind of where I, I really started, you know, from an engineering perspective, you know, doing more like, yeah, not so much like computer science related things like, uh, but, but more like, mechanically project oriented things like one of the first things I worked on when I joined the industry there's this there's this platform called Independence Hub in the deep water Gulf of Mexico the thing and it's just like impressive the scale of the things that you worked on right this this thing was a facility that floated in 9,000 feet of water it produced like at the time, I think it was 2% of the natural gas consumed by the United States. And if you were to like put it on an aerial map, like on top of Houston, you know, the wells that like fed this thing spanned like 120 miles, you know, and they'd all flow back underneath the sea, 9,000 feet water or Gulf of Mexico, rather, 9,000 feet of water all back to the central facility. So just the scale of like those projects and like, you know, from an engineering perspective, like the complexity of things that go into building and, and installing those systems was, was just, a, you know, a, a cool, fun thing to see. And, and I, as my career evolved, it, it again, got like more into like the analytical domains of that, like understanding like productivity and, you know, failures of machinery, things like that, that, you know, might've been, uh, 
you know, kind of more machine learning oriented. And so that's ultimately how I, how I meandered to, to where I am today. But, but yeah, that's, that's how I got to start. In that industry, was that the first time you went from individual contributor to team lead? Yeah, yeah, it was. We, we, uh, at, at some point, I forget exactly when this was, but a handful of years ago, we, you know, this was, I, I would say at the front end of like when machine learning was becoming like a, a big deal. And so, you know, the oil and gas industry was like, we need to do this machine learning stuff, you know, let's do it. And so we created this, like, uh, the company created this, like, you know, innovation initiative and analytics initiative around uh, really leveraging AI and machine learning, you know, within the business more fully, all the way from like geophysical interpretation uh, of, of like, you know, uh, the, the formations underneath the surface of the earth. Uh, through like well productivity and performance, even into like some aspects of safety and environmental health and things like that. And so I, I helped lead the, the engineering team oriented around those initiatives as, uh, as kind of one of my last leadership roles with, with them. And uh, it was really fun. Like, you know, the, there are so many smart people that work in that industry. And, uh, and you know, obviously they, they have been smart at like, you know, a plethora of things from like, you know, more traditional engineering and construction oriented things. Like I was saying with those mega projects all the way through like, you know, uh, well performance and things like that. And and now into like machine learning as well. Like there, there's a lot of really innovative things uh, that have happened in the, in the last five years or so uh, in the industry or in around, around the use of machine learning. So it's been a cool thing to see there. And at what point, did you meet Thought Trace? Like, how did that? What's the story of you joining Thought Trace? Yeah, so like, I think I was boiling crawfish actually, <laughs> and our CEO. That's, a, that's what I was doing. So, um, I think my my wife and uh, our CEO's wife met each other, and uh, you know had had kind of come friends. And Nick, our CEO, uh, came over for a crawfish boil at our house one day. We we're eating crawfish out of the pirog. And, you know, we just got talking about like machine learning and AI and some of the things that he was doing, some of the things I was doing and uh, really hit it off. And like, you know, from that point, I, like, I think the thing, the thing that I really like was drawn to about Nick and, and what he and the team were working on and doing at the time was really like bridging the gap between like machine learning and AI as like an idea versus a, it as a solution. Like in, in working in the role that I had in, in oil and gas previously, like we would every week probably have three different companies come in and pitch us the machine learning solution. That was not a solution at all. It was like a way to sell services so that they could build us a machine learning model that would do some task. There was, it was really difficult for people to like integrate machine learning into software in a way that just like worked out of the box on day one. You know, it's like that. It sounds very obvious and simple, but it's a really hard thing to do. Even, you know, I, I would say today, like operationalizing machine learning uh, is is not an easy thing to do. You know, at scale, there's a lot of ways that machine learning is used today to like generate a report or generate some insight and then take an action. But day to day, every day, you know, how it integrates into into a business process is is not an easy thing to do. And I think you know, we, 
they, they initially had done that. And I think we have done that as a company really well in our software uh, in terms of really kind of making machine learning almost like fade into the background of the the software that you're using. You know, like you go have like type ahead on a text message, like you don't care whether, you know, they've got a monkey somewhere like telling it what to type or whether it's a machine learning model, you just care that it gave you the right, you know, suggestion, you know, and, and you use it. And so, you know, really, really making kind of AI as like a background component of the business process has been something that I think, I think we've done quite well. That's a funny visual. <laughs> That'd be a good, I, I was almost gonna say that's a good startup until I realized like PETA would just rip us apart. They can figure it out. They got monkeys that can do some, some pretty advanced things these days. Look at us, man. We're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> we're beaming light around the universe around the world right now talking in real time that's that's chaos it's it's so cool i i i constantly find myself just amazed about how much we've done i know i, I say it a lot but like 110 years ago we got electricity i know things have happened so fast like it really is unbelievable and then I, I'm just excited right now. I'm pretty excited about the advancements, like with the Teslas, right? These types of cars. Uh, I love running. Like I run outside a lot. I'm a big outdoors person, and so I'm always excited when Teslas drive by because I don't choke. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> hey, if you move to Dallas, Fort Worth, you may see fewer Teslas. But I, I'm with you on that. I, I think it's super cool, and the way they've like you know obviously like consumerized like not just the vehicle itself but like the whole buying experience of it and the ownership experience of it like it's really cool i'm i'm uh i'm hopeful that that sort of same thing like catches hold i think competition you know will uh will ultimately prevail there and i think you'll see more and more folks like that doing doing what they've done it's really cool how they how they kind of reinvented that industry though yeah, and then when the COVID thing happened, I had Ken on the show, who's the CIO at Ford. Yeah. And in our prep meeting, I was trying to figure out like how to ask him a question about why are like the electric vehicles so ugly from every other car company? Like why why can't <laughs> why can't they do that? Or why can't they just take the model as it looks? Like just take that car, your Mustang or whatever your Ford truck, and just make it electric. Like it doesn't need to be ugly, futuristic things. And uh, as I was trying to figure that out with the prep team, I said, wait, let's go, let's go Google and make sure that they're not. And we found like the, uh, like a new Mustang that looks amazing. It was, it looks like a Mustang and it's electric and inside it's got a very Tesla-esque like feel. It's very simple. It's got the screen and everything. And then I did more research and found out all the car manufacturers like picked up on this and their models coming out over the next couple of years are going to be electric and look normal. And that's, that's like the big push now. And so I was, we scratched that question from the show, <laughs> but yeah, but I was, it's, it's exciting for me. Yes. I love the Teslas, but it's exciting for me to see everyone else follow suit and they're just better cars. Like if you've ever driven in a Tesla, it's, it's just, it's a better car. It's a, it's hard to call it a car. It's it's an entirely different experience, and the words don't mean anything until you actually go drive it around. Yeah, and from a like engineering perspective, like like 
the performance of the vehicle, like it just makes sense that like an electric motor would have a faster zero to 60 time than a, a, a combustion engine. You know what I mean? Like, so like you, you see these Tesla videos, actually a good buddies with one of the guys who uh, has that, uh, got like a, a, a podcast called Tesla Geeks and oh. uh, like huge Tesla fans, like super fans of, of Tesla. They, they post a lot about new cars and things like that. But, uh, but, but yeah, I mean, the performance videos and things like that, that those guys have posted, uh, I'm seeing them drop. It's like, it's a, it's a really impressive vehicle, you know? And so I've been super, I think most impressed with them about the range that they've brought to the cars. Like that was always my biggest concern is like, particularly I like for somebody like me, I was like, I'm driving every couple weeks back to new orleans it's 400 miles you know 350 miles one way i'm like i can't stop and charge a car for two hours in the middle of that drive you know what i mean but you know now what they're doing with the range and fast charging and things like that you know they really they really could on that curve i would say just in a matter of a few years which is which has been super impressive yeah and it was a smart move what they did with the battery patents and then becoming the battery energy company Right. They're yeah. essentially Tesla is going to become an energy company. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I fully believe it. That is like their ambition. And one of the things for us is Thought Trace is we've, uh, you know, really grown, you know, quite a bit over the last couple of years in, into the renewable space. And so that's really, you know, personally opened my eyes a lot to, to, to that industry and the complexity of it and, and the pace at which it's, it's grown as well. So, so Tesla's certainly there, but, but other companies too. And, I'm, I'm really impressed by by what they're doing there and, and, and how that's coming along. So some of the renewables industry, like people in the renewables industry use ThoughtTrace for their document analytics? Yeah. So like, you know, a, a renewables asset is just as complex as, as any other asset, right? Like anywhere where you have like asset intensive industries, you know, like in a renewables sector, I've got like tons of, of solar farms, or I've got like tons of wind farms that I'm managing, right? Distributed over many acres or many states or whatever it may be. Or maybe I've got rooftop solar installations, right? Which I've got multiple times more leases associated with those assets. So I'm leasing every roof that I've put a solar asset on. Every one of them's got, you know, a power purchase agreement associated with them or an agreement to interconnect the power into the electric grid. So like these situations, like that's a renewables example, but like in real estate, obviously, like, you know, buildings and office space and warehouses, uh, telecom would be things like, you know, cell towers or with 5G, like you've got a bunch of smaller towers now that will be going up. So anywhere where you've got a lot of assets, generally you've got a contract around each one of those assets. And and those are those are particular industries where, thought trace is 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 really uh is really proficient because because we're really good at uh kind of understanding those contracts and and bringing information to bear on them and and allowing users to to manage and and take action on them uh, more efficiently so renewable certainly fits that bill it's been been a a really really cool area for us to, to grow into it's been fun what is the thing you are most excited about at thought trace the thing i'm most excited about at thought trace right now I'll I'll take like the geeky answer for you. So like in in the in natural language space, like I would say 
deep learning is like a few years behind where like computer vision is in terms of like advancement. And so like deep learning has been a thing within language for a while, obviously. Um, But in the last couple of years, there's been a lot of, you know, new advancements on that in terms of like the use of new model architectures, particularly transformer architectures. And, you know, we, like I said, we don't have a big team, you know, I think, you know, we're just north of 60 as a company, you know, and, and only a fraction of that is, is developers and only a fraction of that is data science, you know, oriented developers. And so, you know, we've, we've really, I would say, taken with a small team of, of data scientists and, and operationalized at scale, like, you know, we've processed I would say tens of millions of documents at this point, like in the many billions of words through our system. And to be able to operationalize like a deep learning system like that is, is I would say non-trivial, you know, you got the likes of the Googles and Facebooks and Ubers of the world who do it maybe without blinking an eye with teams of thousands of engineers. But I, I've just been really excited that, that, that we've been able to like build a system, not just from a data science standpoint, but, but really, you know, across the board from our platform team to, to our app teams, to our data scientists that, uh, that has handled the scale. And certainly it seems like every year, like you build something with an expectation of this scale. And then, you know, a year from now, you're like 10x that. And all of a sudden you have to scrap everything you did and rebuild it from scratch. So, you know, the, the problems get harder for sure, but, but it's been fun uh, and really exciting for me to continue to like kind of reach and, and achieve new uh, new barriers of scale on our platform. So uh, that, and in particular, the, the context of, of deep learning there, I'm, I'm really excited about where that's going from a, from a natural language standpoint. That's exciting, right? Shipping product, operationalizing it, overcoming these, these huge obstacles in order to do so with you know, small, small lean team. That seems like a trend and I mean, you go, you go look on like a, a medium article, somebody will post, Hey, this is how you do, you know, natural language generation with Bert. And it's like, you know, they've got 17 lines of some PyTorch code to show you how to do that. But it's like, you know, that only scratches the surface of really what is required to like put that thing to life. Right. Uh, and there are so many specifics around uh, how that impl- implementation needs to function for your organization and for your pro- product. And so, you know, the line that says dot fit, you know, is, is really like, honestly, the simplest line. It's all the stuff that comes before and after that, that, that makes it really hard. So. Yeah. Including the sales side of things. Right. So not only do you have to build it and it has to work and you have to document it and support it and then sell it and you have to do all of these things. It's like a symphony playing together. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And like making sure that like we're building the right products and things like that, you know, and like I, I can tell you, we, we uh, I think, have, have had a strategy and we've really been executing on that strategy now pretty consistently for the last you know 18 months. But early on in particular, there was a lot of different directions we could have gone with the business. Right. And with the business model and like like the idea is only one component of that, like the business model and how you execute on that idea, like can make or break that idea, you know? And, uh, and so really learning, learning that business model and, and, and how we can be most successful at implementing that and being successful 
uh, and growing the company with it has been uh, has been a learning experience and, and still is honestly like like we we try new things and learn new things every day uh, on that front still. Yep. I'm always fascinated with communication. It seems to be one of the things that affects every area of your life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And like the different styles of communication that you need in in the different like aspects of your life, you know what I mean? Like that that's the hardest part. Like you need to be a chameleon a little bit. Like you can't just bring one face to every situation. You need to kind of change tact depending on who you're talking to or what the scenario or situation is. So that's what makes it really hard. Oh yeah. And then as you start talking to a lot of people, whether you have a company and you have a lot of people or like I do a lot of interviews, when you're around a bunch of bright people, right? Which you are at Thought Trace, when you're around a bunch of bright people, you learn there's so much to learn that for me it's become an interesting it's interesting to watch how I forget, right? Because yeah. I get all this great advice from all of these different people on all of these topics. And uh, it's like, it's, it's amazing how my mind will just delete certain things, but keep other things. It's, it's been fascinating. It must be incredibly challenging to show prep, you know, like the mental gymnastics that you go through every week to talk to somebody about like cybersecurity all the way to, you know, structuring teams you know like uh, those are those are big deviations in terms of in terms of what your mind's doing so how, how do you prep yeah so prep is pretty fun um we've gotten better at it over time but we have a producer and associate producer we have prep meetings we get you know ideas and topics of what people want to talk about uh, and then we sit down and we research the person so we've got like in front of me right now i have this document that has like your face, like all the links to all your social profiles, summaries from our producers and from bios on your company. Yeah. It says you like fly fishing and have two daughters. Like we research the <laughs> heck out of you. Right. And then, um, then we sit down in these meetings and it takes, you know, a couple hours to prep every episode, but we ask ourselves like, what, where is the area that's like going to make this person shine? Like what type of information they have, how many people are at their company? What are they experiencing right now? Where where can we pull useful knowledge from them so that the audience will enjoy the podcast? And yeah. That's awesome. Man. That's really hard to do because obviously everybody brings a, a, a unique uh, set of experiences and perspective to every conversation. So I don't envy you. That's a, that's a tough task for sure. I don't think I, I can it. a machine learning system to, to do that. I'll say that your job is protected. I, I'm I'm <laughs> I'm just such a geek though, because I mean, I did software develop, I wrote code for like 17 years and built engineering teams. And so I'm genuinely interested and it's like, my job is to get to understand these technologies and explore yeah. them and do deep dives. Like I did a big deep dive the past couple months ago into quantum computing, right? So yeah. I, I listened to or two where you were talking about quantum, yeah. Yeah, did you get the, uh, the Honeywell episode? No, I did not. You so went they, deep quantum on Honeywell? Yeah. So I was trying to figure out if it's business ready. Like what's the state of quantum computing? Because like you said earlier with the medium articles, you know, you can find an article on here's how you program a, a quantum formula and an API. And it's just this like cookie cutter example. And I wasn't really sure what the purpose of it was because you could do that with, you know, traditional computing. Depending on what your search history is, you can find a Google search to reaffirm any bias you have. <laughs> 
<laughs> I know uh, that's the rule, isn't it? And and so I couldn't wrap my mind around something, and that is a huge driver for me because I'm a very curious person. So because I couldn't wrap my mind around it, I was like, all right, I'm going to go a mile deep into this. I started taking the courses on algebra and and uh, apparently linear algebra happens to be a, a good starting point for quantum computing. Uh, and uh, then I started inviting all the guests on. So at the time that like week I was doing that, I found out, I saw a press release for Honeywell releasing like the world's fastest quantum computer. And it reminded me of like the Intel races where like every, every three months there's a new, new company, they're all going after each other. And uh, what my takeaway of it from the entire multi-week experience and really drilling down and asking tough questions to all of these people who are involved with quantum computing is that it's currently like if you could imagine the analogy or that it would be like classical computing when the computers were very 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 large like the size of a room now i'm not saying that the quantum computing are are very large although some of them are but what i'm saying is like in that sense the the big computer room, it was mostly mathematicians and nerds doing nerd things It hadn't gotten to the point where there were like developers building for business logic type deal. So my and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but like, my takeaway of the current state today is that it's useful for people running quantum algorithms and doing quantum uh, things, which are usually like quantum physicists, right, because they need to process quantum computations, and they were doing it you know, maybe by hand or something, uh, or maybe weren't able to do it. I don't know. I'm not a physicist, but it's useful for them right now. So there's APIs and there's a business model behind it. And in the future, it might be useful for some other things. And then the last takeaway was even people like I talked to the creator of Ripple, you know, the cryptocurrency, he's not even worried about it for the next 10 years. Cause that's like a big hot headline. If you Google, Oh, the quantum, if you can go build your quantum computing, you can crack and have all the Bitcoin in the world. And there's going to be all these problems and everything. Well, no, there's, there's actually quantum safe algorithms for hashing. They're just a little bit slower today. Um, there's a 10 year. He's like, I worry about things that are like less than 10 years out. So they're not the industry right now. And I talked to multiple people, no one's freaking out about this. Yeah. 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 It's certainly not something like, you know, not that it, it would be, we would probably just leverage it if it was available and useful, but you know, it, it's not something that sh strikes me as like something that will affect our business in any way. And like you said, next five to 10 years, you know, there's, there's a huge, uh, kind of, it's not just the technology itself, but like the, the almost the bigger leap is like the democratization of that technology. Right. And like that's often like even a harder thing to, to accomplish. And like you, you, we're still not there, like with machine learning today, right? Like you know, the the platforms that are being developed by 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 a lot of companies uh, are are trying to democratize access to machine learning more so to kind of non development centric people. But but even that is not like really fully democratized just yet. I have faith though that it'll happen as it needs to happen. Yeah. Right? We're yeah. moving so fast. And there's, I, I love the fact that, you know, back in the 80s, some new technology came out, the whole world would know about it, because there was like one source of, you know, handful of sources of information that would stream out. But now there's so many advancements happening in so many different, you know, areas like nooks and crannies of the world and so many industries that you literally cannot catch up, you cannot hold it all in your mind, it's too much information. Right. So for me, yeah. yeah, go ahead. 
No, I was going to say, like, I think what you said there around, like, it'll happen when it needs to is spot on. It's like the need creates, you know, the solution at the end of the day. And if there's a business need or social need or something like that, like, we'll figure out a way to make it work, you know? Yeah, that the what the necessity, mother of invention phrase. I love cliches because cliches are things that are so true. They like make the generation mad because their parents said it. Yeah, they're true because they just work, you know, they're like they make sense. Everybody yeah. gets it. I'm always been fascinated with the humans, uh, <laughs> as if I'm not one, right? I've always been fascinated with humans because it, we we find these these truths and then we kind of hate them. And yeah. and it's like that's 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 kind of strange, right? It's like we found things that we know are like universal truths, and our natural reaction is to sort of hate them. Because they put us in a box, right? It's like, uh, well, this truth can't be true about me. I'm I'm unique. Like I don't I don't fit that mold. I can't. <laughs> Joel, you're a snowflake. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just I'm uh, yeah. I'll leave that be. <laughs> I, I I like it. I like I like humanity because like we we do believe that we're special and we're individuals, but we also do things as collectives. And I'll tell you what, if if you kind of take a step back and get weird for a second and uh, we'll, and we'll wrap, do you have another five minutes? Yeah, I'm good. Oh, okay. So if you take a, a step back and get weird for a minute and you start, if you imagine like the universe that we are in almost being like a container, right. And then it's going to happen for a very long time, like hundreds of millions of billions of years, wouldn't this kind of be like a fun thing to do? Yeah. You know, like go live a life on earth. Like there, there's 20 years or, or, or that's wrong. I don't want it to be 20 years. <laughs> there's a hundred years. Right. Yeah. And then it would make, it would, it would be kind of interesting because if we were like a, a civilization that existed outside, that could like exist forever, right. That could exist for, let's say a billion years, not even the whole universe. If we could exist for a billion years, uh, we would get pretty bored, right? Yeah. Once you can zip around and go everywhere, it's like, okay, and then what? Um, and so maybe going through a, you know, booting up a planet and going through life would be an interesting activity you could do. That's right. That's the next frontier. But right? I think, so one of my, you, I talk, I mentioned those books I go back to like regularly and read my favorite book of all of all time is thinking fast and slow by uh daniel kahneman like in the in the academic world like you're familiar with like academic references and like you write a paper and your goal in writing that paper is to be referenced by other people right and if you are referenced by many other academics that means you've contributed to the academic knowledge in a big way. Like other people took your work and built off of it, like in a substantial way. So you were like a, an important building block to knowledge. That's like, I don't know, in a nutshell, how people think, how I think about academic references. Well, this, this book, you can listen to like almost any like business book, leadership book, you know, self-help book, you name it. Like this book is referenced. You know, so in in the realm of academics, I feel like it's a it's a really important like book for a lot of people to read because it's it's so foundational to so many things that we do. But it's a it's a like behavioral economics like cognitive science book, and like the premise of that book is like even though everybody thinks they're so different and unique, like they're really not. You know, and he gave a really good example of uh, 
he and a team of, of he's, he's from uh, Israel, him and a team of other scientists were writing like some textbooks as part of, I think, the, you know, the, the armed forces over there. And they all sat around and they said, how long do you think it's going to take this tech for us to write this textbook? And they were all like, oh, we're really smart people. We like, we're like cutting edge of our fields. Like we'll do it in six months. We'll do it in like nine months, maybe a year at the most. And then they went and looked at the data and they said, how long does it generally take teams to write textbooks? And they're like, you know, seven years, no one does it less than five. And they were still all like, no, we're going to do it a year. And they were like, seven years later, they finished the textbook. You know, so it's like we, we get this like human bias that like says, you know, no, I'm going to solve that problem because I know I'm smart and I'm going to work my tail off. But really, you know, you, you can't separate yourself from from being a statistic sometimes. It's kind of the lesson of that book, as, yeah. as grim as that may sound. Yeah, but it's also it's almost like that's required that that bright eyed, bushy tailed optimism, like lack of experience, because, you know, that's most entrepreneurs, right? You you have to have that like, oh, I'm going to go out there and crush it mentality to get yourself into gear. And then what tends to separate, you know, the winners from the losers is persistence. Right. Like when you, when you have that moment where you realize I was wrong, like when they got to six months, right. They could have stopped. Right. They could have been like, Nope, we didn't do it or we're not there, but they didn't. It's like they, that initial bright eyed and bushy tailed mentality got them started and then they continued and then, and then they finished. And the next time they go through, they have a realistic expectation of it and understand the process. And then like, I've already done this once before we can do it again. Let's just do it again. Yeah. It's a, it's a phenomenal characteristic of, of people, you know, like, but you're absolutely right. And it's, that is what like causes us to be so innovative as a, as a race and as a society, you know, it's, it's really impressive. That's why I'm, I tend to be optimistic with everything with from social dilemma algorithms to, you know, election stuff, like all, all the parts of life, right. Where, where fear will set in pretty quickly. I tend to be optimistic because I just run into a stream of amazing people constantly that their heart's in the right place. And we're all just trying to improve and grow. And almost never do I run into like the evil villain. (laughs) Right. Um, Yeah. What'd you think of that social dilemma thing? You mentioned that. I'm assuming you, you watched that, huh? Yeah, I I thought it was super interesting. What did you think about it? Yeah, I thought it was super well done. You know, I think everybody hears about like, you know, the robots are coming around AI. Like, I, I thought it was, it was just a well done documentary because like, I think it brought like, a different, you know, brought the threat of AI in a different light, right? It's not this like robot with a with a laser that's going to come kill us all, you know. But it's like, you know, it, it's humans like creating the incorrect incentives around the use of AI. It's not like like the machine learning models are really good at what they do, and honestly, like so much has been created by the technology that those companies develop, like. BERT is a model that is available to everybody as like a starting point because Google has done so much work around language and like understands that data so well and like has has uh, has 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 been able to leverage it in such a way to like 
push forward the rest of the community and, and the rest of society on that front. So there's there's so much good that that comes from it. It's just that like that one situation where we've kind of seems misaligned like the incentives of how it gets used that has these ripple effects that we obviously, you know, couldn't have foreseen and, and didn't foresee, you know? So it's, it, it's, it was really enlightening, you know, to me and in, in just in terms of like seeing how easily that can happen in terms of, in terms of like taking something that is, I, I think on its own in isolation, a good thing um, and maybe putting it into the right, into the wrong situation and, and how that can really snowball very quickly on you. Yeah, I also have, you know, faith in people. So I think one of the things that works against us right now, which is why I really liked the social dilemma and back to it'll happen when it needs to happen. It's becoming so important right now. It's it's really impacting our lives. And so people are talking about it. They're making movies about it. They're writing books about it. Discourse, conversations going to happen. Thought leaders will emerge from that. Standards and common you know, ways of thinking about this stuff will emerge from that. And then moral uh, compass will be able to connect with that, right? Like you will be able to calibrate against it. And that way you, you it's like we're, we're decentralized as humans, right? We're all individuals, but we're also a group. It's like, we can play both. And so what will happen is these engineers, once there's, once there's a once it's ironed out, once it's talked about enough, and once there's these thought leaders and there's these common ways of thinking about it and kind of these things we all agree on as humans, at least for like right now, then people will start raising their hand or speaking out if those things are being violated. If, if the no-nos are happening, uh, you know, there will, you get enough, you get a hundred people together. Some of them are going to say, this is against what we should be doing. This is not the thought in the industry. And they will, they'll tell on the bigger organizations. Right. Yeah. 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 I agree. And I, I think from like, from a society standpoint, like I bet if you went around and took a survey, it was like, you know, about any of these platforms, like, is this good for your life? I don't know that the majority of people would say, yes, this is like good for my life. I think everybody like, sees some like negativity associated with it, like whether it's addiction and time that they spend using it and things like that. And so I'm with you. I think like the more that like that conversation just happens, I, I think, you know, amongst individuals and amongst society, I think the more action you'll see kind of being taken around, around some of those things. And, and I think that documentary just like in a very objective kind of nonpartisan way, like, like did a great job of just like, it seemed framing the issue in my mind. So. Yeah. And I've also, if you have back to, we're in America. So personal responsibility is like the foundation of Americans. Right. And, you know, that's your phone, right? There it is. You know, you can, you can put it down. You can delete the apps. You can like for me, eight, nine months ago, I turned off all notifications. I don't have notifications anymore. I noticed yeah. myself picking up my phone like a hundred, 200 times a day reflexively. It's just, it bothered me so much. I just said, I remember a time when I was going through high school, we didn't like have cell phones. And for, for the first, you know, 18 years of my life, I wasn't picking up a cell phone. Right. And then it's, then it's this thing I do and you get the screen time reports and 
so I, to take control, I turned off all notifications and I, when the new iOS came out, I removed like all the screens and the icons. So it's basically just like a picture of my kid when I open it up and then I have to go search for any specific app I want to use. I'm moving them all into the app library. So, you know, I think it's really important to, when it's, when it's this easy to have junk food, right? You have to come up with ways to get the junk food out of your house. <laughs> yeah. Like, and that's like, I think where like we reach the end of machine learning's benefit to us, right? It is too good. Like I don't, I, I've never been an Apple person. I think Apple does a great job with security. I've, I've been on Android, like from day one, Google, like everything I do. I, but I, I use DuckDuckGo now for a while. And like, I'll be the first to tell you, it is not as good. Like it is not as good. Like I don't find what I am trying to find as easily, but like, well, that is a cost that I think is worth it. You know what I mean? Because like in other situations, like I don't want to find like what is quote unquote the right thing for me to be looking for. Like it should take some effort in some situations. Like I had to go write a book report in high school. Like I was going to the library and I had to sit down and I had to read the three books on the shelf that were about that to understand all the perspectives and write, you know, an opinion. It, it should be, I think, a little bit of more of a lift to like find the information you need to, to formulate your own opinion. So I think it, it'll take some getting used to as well from people that like maybe this system or this service or this solution does not need to be so good. Like maybe it can be a little worse and, and that's okay. Yeah, DuckDuckGo, right when I started using it, I noticed that exact same thing. But I like the fact that you could research things and not it not be a part of your profile and you not be put into that box. Right. Yeah, you have to go like, you're starting from scratch every time you go in as a person, which means like you get all the information, like the things you agree with, things you don't agree with, and like you have to make heads and tails of it. And And I think that mental those mental gymnastics are actually good. And, and I fully agree. That's why like as parents, I think to kind of like wrap, wrap this whole like privacy conversation up and like the future and the, the fear and the happiness and all of the good things that will come with it and difficult conversations and all of that. One thing I, I found out is that as parents raising the next generations, we can do a better job raising them to think mm -hmm. and how, how to think and how to deal with these things because yes it's a problem and we both saw in the documentary that the the teenage girl suicides went up but where was the parenting in that you know like we, i don't think it's all it's not all on the algorithms yes they're addictive yes they have scientists doing that but where was the parenting on that yeah yeah i mean it, it highlights the need to, to to be engaged in that stuff you know i mean just like, you know, it's, it's no different than like active bullying at school, you know, it's just now obviously a digital one and it's, it, it's harder to see that those things are happening, right? So it, it just takes an added level of vigilance from a, from a parent's perspective to, to stay on top of those things. It's a harder, it's a harder job in a lot of ways because of that. We just connected all the humans on the planet. It's like the, we're going through puberty right now. We're trying <laughs> to figure out how to deal with this right? We've got the hormones going. It's crazy. We're all immature. Where's dad type deal. 
right? Like there's no central agency to control this stuff. This is not like necessarily a government. There's no, there's nothing you can point at. Uh, and so we're all just kind of like these angsty teenagers maturing and, and over the next decade or two, we'll, things will figure it out. We'll calm down a little bit. And then the next hundred years, we'll be like wise 30 year olds. And then in 200 years, we'll be 40 and 300. Yeah. I like your optimism. I'm looking forward to those days. We'll get there because that's the beautiful thing. As difficult as all these problems are, historically, we solve these problems and move forward. So the storm will be here. But I'll tell you what, Joel, like learning how to stay centered in a storm is uh, similar to communication. It feels like it's something you're always working on. Yeah. Yeah. Got to constantly keep yourself in check and kind of go back to your priorities as a, as a person, you know, and, and make sure you stay standing on those. Yeah. And surround yourself with great people, you know, Joel, this is awesome. Dude, we made a podcast. Yeah. Joel was really good getting to know you a little bit. That's fun. Is there anything that we didn't get out that we want to get out here at the end? I don't know. I think, I think we touched on everything, honestly. Um, do you have a demo on your website, ThoughtTrace? Do you have a demo or do they contact you? How does that work? If I want to, like, if somebody wants to see it in action. Yeah, awesome. My, my marketing, uh, my marketing director, Brittany, who's phenomenal, would have beat me up if I, if I didn't say something like that. So, uh, you know, yeah, we've, we've got demos on our website. We're actually, you know, going to market, like I mentioned, with our new release on the 27th. Um, so a ton of new content hitting the website on the 27th around that done some really cool things with like really specific like experience videos like that are really targeted to like the industries and the users and the types of problems that they're solving uh, with our new product too so uh, all that all that'll be up you know on the 27th and really looking forward to to going live there and and uh, continuing to to improve the product over the course of the next the next handful of years it's it's been a fun ride and it'll 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 be, a, I think, even more fun ride once we uh, once we make this new launch. Oh, that's exciting. And we'll put links in the show notes and everything so people can access that really easily. Cool, cool. Thank you for that. Dude, this is great. Joel, if you ever have like questions or, or you, you hear someone, like you're listening to the podcast and you hear somebody talking about something and, and you want to talk to them, you just reach out to me and just say, hey, can you connect me with this person? I, I want to talk about this topic and I'll introduce you and everyone's like i get letters from people all the time that this is something that happens uh so i figured i would help facilitate it as well so if you ever need anything like that you just reach out um you know jake our producer can help connect you i can help connect you we'll make it happen but whatever you need because we want thought trace to be successful i want you to be successful so however we can help just let us know that's awesome man i really appreciate that thanks joel it's fun talking to you thanks have a great day Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.